All right, please open your Bibles to Judges chapter 16. And we're finishing the stories of Samson. God's given us a lot of details, a lot of dynamic details about this character, Samson. He's probably one of the most entertaining characters in the entire, uh, entire Bible. Uh, so we're finishing the, uh, the stories and exploits of his life. We'll be looking at verses 23 through the end of chapter 16, and I'm going to invite you to stand now as I read this for us. Uh, we're standing because uh, this word is unique. This is uh, the only book where the uh, if you're looking around trying to find uh, a physical manifestation of the Spirit, you probably won't uh, encounter that, but the Spirit's here, and he's, he's taken up residency in everybody who lives by faith in Jesus, and so... Um, we stand in honor of the fact that God's with us and that he has given us his word. All right, put your full attention on Judges chapter 16, starting in verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the, the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel, feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtual in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. Please have a seat. And I invite you to pray with me. God, it is by faith, which is to say it is by a miraculous intervention on your part that we were impacted by it and changed by it, transformed by it, and conformed more into the image of and committed to the way of Jesus. And that's what we're asking for right now. We're bringing our, needy, our neediness. We're bringing our, our lack of merit and, and asking you to take our neediness and demerit and, and, um, and transform us. Um, forgive us for our sins and, and change us and make us more like Jesus as, as a result, a direct result of having studied your word in a heartfelt all right, once upon a time, there was a family. And this family was seriously, passionately committed to three things. Number one, this family was seriously committed to collecting priceless artifacts 
For example, uh, the Chinese imperial revolving vase. They went after objects like that. This vase that recently auctioned for $41.6 million. So they wanted these, these very valuable artifacts in their home. And they would put them on pedestals and in display cases. And that's what, they, that's what they loved to do. That's the first thing. Number two, they were seriously and passionately committed to adopting and fostering four-year-old boys with ADHD and sometimes taking in stray puppies. These two things. Um, and then finally, third, they were, they were very deeply committed to um, perfection, for, for things just to be perfect, okay? So one day, some of these uh, little four-year-old boys with ADHD were chasing the puppies around the house, and the, the Chinese imperial revolving vase worth $41.6 million was sitting there on its, on its display pedestal, and uh, as you can easily imagine, the, the puppy ran by the pedestal and the boys knocked it off and it fell to the ground and it smashed into a variety of pieces. And you, you think about that scenario and you think, well, duh, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> obviously, what, what else did this family expect? I mean, you can't have priceless artifacts, this commitment to having these, these precious multiple millions of dollars worth of, of pieces of pottery sitting around your house and four-year-old little boys with ADHD and puppies. You can't have both. That's, that's never, ever going to work. You can't have a, a perfect home with all these artifacts and these little boys. But that's precisely the situation that God has going on in his, in his life and in his relationships. That's exactly the situation he wants. God is very committed to perfection. He, he says it really clearly. You have to be perfect as your holy heavenly father is perfect. And uh, God has said, this, this is the scenario. I'm going to author and perfect my people. But then you read scripture. You read a story like Samson's story and you think it's, it's anything but perfect. It looks like a complete mess. It, it just seems like this, this scenario, Samson's life, all the stories that we've seen in the book of Judges, it's, it's anything but perfect. It's wretched. And, and it's important to remember that the expectation for the original audience, and as we're reading through Judges, is that Samson is supposed to be the perfect judge. Let, let's just review his life. Uh, the, the conception story for Samson. Do you remember? His mom was barren. She wasn't able to have children. And then they received a supernatural visitor, the angel of the Lord multiple times, comes to Samson's mom and dad, and, and God says, I am going to miraculously give you a child. So, so his birth story is very, very supernatural. Furthermore, he was consecrated from the womb. I mean, he has this very sacred, set-apart calling. From before he was even born, he's set-apart and he's special. And then as we, we go along in the stories of Samson, we see he's just crazy strong. I mean, we've seen, we've seen some impressive characters who, who come before Samson. Some really impressive stories of, of, of amazing feats of strength, but nothing like Samson. He is the recipient and conduit of unparalleled power. The Holy Spirit rushes on him, and he does things that nobody has ever done. And now we come here to the end of Samson's story, his golden years, you could say, and Samson is a complete wreck. It's, it's like he squandered all of, of that calling and all those gifts it's, it's all been for nothing. It's just a complete mess. It's anything but perfect. 
And for anybody who's even half attentive to this story, the obvious question is, what went wrong? What went wrong? I mean, look at Samson's life. Look how it ends. It's, it's wretched. Something clearly went wrong. So what was it? Well, first of all, the first thing that from the human vantage point you could say went wrong is that God decided to include very undesirable characters in his story. That's the first most obvious thing that went wrong from our perspective. I mean, when you find something broken, like, like the, the uh, ancient Chinese vase I mentioned, and then you see an unruly four-year-old boy with attention deficit disorder standing in the vicinity of the broken vase, it doesn't take a genius to put together what went wrong there. Obviously, obviously this unruly little kid knocked that vase over, and that's why it's smashed. See, our formula for perfection, if, if we were aspiring to create an environment or a community that's perfect, are people. Just make sure they're not in attendance. That's, that's how we'll get a perfect community, right? We'll, we'll just exclude the undesirables. So, for example, if you're going to throw a dinner party, it's going to be the perfect dinner party. Well, how do you pull that off? Well, the people who are socially awkward, I think we can all agree, they don't, they don't get invited. The people who don't know like basic codes of conduct and you know, ways of decorum and social etiquette and people who have very low you know, emotional IQs, you just exclude them. You don't have them come to the dinner party. That's how you pull it off. Right? You, you pull off the perfect dinner party by, by looking to people who have you know, a higher level of education probably or you know, some kind of credential that qualifies them to be at the party or, or, or a better pedigree than most other people in society. Well, let's, let's consider how Jesus would answer this question. And we don't have to guess at this because he actually tells us in the Gospel of Luke chapter 14, here's how to have the perfect dinner party. And we know he's saying it's the perfect dinner party because he's perfect. Because he's God in the flesh. So by default, he's explaining, here's how I, the perfect one, would, would have a dinner party. And this is how you should do it. He says, when you give a dinner party, don't invite your, your friends or your rich neighbors. All, all the elite members of society, all the people who are impressive and popular, don't invite them. Okay, well, who, so who are we supposed to invite? He says, invite the poor, the crippled, the blind. In other words, invite the undesirables. That's who you should invite. See, God's formula for perfection, as crazy as it sounds, is that you would actually, first step, include the undesirables. And Samson is a great example of that. Verse 25, his whole life really, but verse 25, we see on so many levels, Samson is an undesirable character. He has completely neglected and squandered his calling and his gifts throughout these stories. And now he's enslaved to the Philistines. His eyes have been gouged, gouged out. He's imprisoned. He's completely humiliated. And he's brought out at this, at this Dagon Jamboree, this festival to this false god. He's brought out for the immunity. And you look at verse 28, you look at verse 30, even Samson's prayers here in his moment of desperation aren't particularly exemplary. They're not super humble, contrite prayers. Let me get vengeance, Lord. Let me die with these pagans, Lord. They're not the most contrite, most eloquent prayers. And here's the thing, the Bible is full of stories like this that don't just involve undesirable characters, but actually prominently feature these very unheroic people put in positions of, of prominence in God's stories. Uh, you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Adam, 
the, the first character, the first human character. Well, it doesn't take long for him to become pretty undesirable, <laughs> right? Our federal representative, the reason your life has pain and suffering and wretchedness and corruption, it all went off track with one representative of the human race. If there are crimes against humanity, th those crimes need to be pinned on, on Adam. He messed up. He messed up. He's, he's, not a real, he's not a real good guy, you could say. He's where it all went wrong. What about Noah? Remember the story of Noah? Um, Noah, the story of Noah starts out with everybody on earth was doing only evil all the time. But there was this one guy who was righteous. And you think, okay, so he's a desirable character. He's righteous. God says he's righteous. And so you know the story. God says, build an ark. And I'm going to flood the earth, and you and your family, you're going to survive the flood. You're going to be miraculously preserved through the deadly floodwaters. And you think, that's great. Finally, we have a story of a desirable character, Noah. Well, hold on. You know how the story of Noah ends? After God miraculously, mercifully preserves Noah and his family, Noah he, he finally gets to live on land again, and the first thing he does is he plants a vineyard, he grows some grapes, and uh, he makes some wine, and he becomes an alcoholic, which is to say he abuses alcohol. He overindulges, and he gets sloppy drunk. He, he strips off all his clothes and passes out naked. That's what the Bible says. It's a very entertaining book. If you haven't, if you haven't really dipped into these details, this is what the Bible's talking about all over the place. And his, and his son does something disrespectful, something sort of dehumanizing to him. We're not exactly sure what, but then he wakes up and he finds out that his son did something bad and he curses his son and, and Noah and his son are estranged for the rest of their days. It, it's a pretty gritty, messy, complicated story and it, it presents this, this version of Noah that's, that's not one-dimensional and just, well, he's a good, righteous man and, and he's desirable. No, he's, he's a flawed character. What about Abraham? A great patriarch? The, the, the mighty father Abraham? I mean, he, he's, he's an exemplary character, right? He's a desirable, upstanding, righteous man. Well, here's the thing. Every time Abraham and his wife Sarah would travel out of their, out of their country to another, to another, another nation, uh, Abraham would start to get really fearful of what these other men in these, these other countries would do if they saw him with his smoking hot wife. Because apparently she was just very pretty. And he thought, you know, they may want to bully me or, or, or even kill me. So, so for reasons, not of righteousness, but for reasons of self-preservation, he'd go to Sarah and he'd say, honey, I need you to pretend to be my sister. And of course, this puts her in a predicament because now these men in these other nations think, well, she's on the market. She's available. And, and they pursue her. And sometimes they even take her to be their wives. And he's not really loving his wife like Christ loves the church. But that's what the Bible says about Abraham. And he didn't just do it once, he did it multiple times. Guys, we're not even halfway through the first book of the Bible. And these are the prominent characters. You see, God has this way, and actually good stories, good literature agrees with this, that you know, the best stories will, first of all, be honest with you. Right? We're not going to sugarcoat things. We're going to tell you, here's the way the world is, and this is what you have to wrestle with. 
but there's something about the best stories that, that definitely include flawed, undesirable characters. So Lord of the Rings, you don't have to be a, a fan of Lord of the Rings, but I think you have to agree, like, it's, it's gotten some traction. It's, it's been around a while. Um, it's, it's deeply appreciated and celebrated by lots of people. Uh, you know, at the center of that story, you've got this character Frodo, right, making this pilgrimage with his buddy Sam. And then there's this other character named Gollum who's right there with them. And Sam tries to say, let's get rid of Gollum. And Frodo says, we can't. He, he's like, he's necessary in some weird way. Like he, he's, he gets to be included. And a big reason why Frodo thinks Gollum should continue to be with them isn't just because he knows the way toward where they're going, but, but Frodo's feeling the effects of evil in his own life. He's feeling the, the evil, nefarious impact of this ring that he's carrying, this burden that he has to bear. And he's saying, I can see myself in Gollum. And so we need to include this highly undesirable character because honestly, it's, it's, it's part of my story. I can empathize. I can more deeply wrestle with what, what I have to battle and deal with because there, there's, this, there's this deep evil thing in me too. What about Voyage of the Dawn Treader? You know this story in the Chronicles of Narnia? There's this really obnoxious kid named Eustace Scrub. Right? I mean, ultimately, Aslan brings him onto the boat too. And, and, you know, at first, especially, everybody's like, what is this kid doing here? He didn't want to be here, and we don't want him here. He is so undesirable. But then Reepicheep takes him under his wings. They end up becoming good buddies. And, you know, the, the whole time, Edmund's there, and he's thinking, you know, that was me. Back in the, back in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I was at Eustace. I was the kid who was annoying and, and just, I mean, I was worse than him. I was a betrayer. I worked with the white witch. Like, I need, I need Eustace here in some ways. I need these undesirable characters because it reveals something about my sin and who I am and what I still have to wrestle with. So let me just pause right here and, and ask point blank. And you don't have to tell other people, you know, who you're answering this question about. But who are, who are the people who are undesirable? Just between you and God, you think, I don't. I don't desire that person. Person's hard for me. Now my question is, how does God want you to, to work to include them? I mean, this could be a really easy answer for, for those of you growing up in households, you know, get siblings, and maybe you're thinking, well, it's, it's, my, it's my brother and my sister. <laughs> and it's pretty obvious, like, you can't get, you can't get rid of them. But so you have, to, you have to think about, okay, why did God put them in my life? And how can I be a participant? If God wants them in my life, how can I agree with and participate in this insistence that they be included? How can we be, how can we be constructive about that and on board with that? Because that seems to be a thing God wants to build into our life experience. Now, I need to say, sin aside, because a lot of what makes for undesirable characters, including all of us in this room, is our sin, our, our wretchedness, our selfishness. But even if we removed the sin, there still remains a commitment on God's part to include this, this motif of an undesirable character. Jesus' dinner party protocol, his, his instructions about throwing a dinner party, it illustrates this. There, there's nothing sinful about being born blind or crippled. And God's saying, you're still involving them. Uh, Jesus, his short stories, the way, the way he crafts his short stories and the character development in those stories, it, it 
emphasizes this motif of undesirable characters. So there's this story in Luke 10 where Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience and he doesn't make a Levite the hero of the story and he doesn't make a Jewish priest the hero of a story. He makes a hated Samaritan the hero of the story. The story we know it by, the good Samaritan, that no one in the original audience would have, would have thought of this, this reality of a good Samaritan. That was an impossibility in Jesus' day. Culturally, that couldn't, be, that couldn't be true. You couldn't have a good Samaritan. It'd be like going to the Republican National Convention and giving a speech about the good Democrat. People would boo you off the stage. It's impossible. See, but what's Jesus doing? He's saying, these Samaritans, these undesirables, they are part of, of my stories. They're part of my family. They're part of my kingdom. And ultimately, Jesus himself embodies this point of emphasis. Jesus is the ultimate undesirable character because fundamentally, first and most basically, his ways aren't our ways, and so that makes him undesirable. We don't like it when someone comes into our life and tells us the kinds of very authoritative, non-negotiable truths that Jesus told us, and it doesn't align with our preferences. Jesus steps on a lot of toes. So at a minimum, that makes him pretty undesirable. But more than that, here's a prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah 53 says, here's what's true of Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and be attracted to him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. Because ultimately, the way of Jesus leads to this life of serving other people so radically that you would actually lay down your life for people. And not good people, but, but villainous people, your enemies. And that's not something that the, the world looks at and says, yeah, we desire that. So Jesus says, I, I embody this principle. God's adamance to include undesirables. Now, completely distinct from sin, another way of saying this is God insists on weakness. Inescapable weakness. Um, God has actually filled the earth with evidence of the fruitfulness of of inescapable weakness. So here, here's how Jesus put it in John chapter 12. He said, unless a seed falls to the earth and dies, it will be fruitless. So, so the whole paradigm of fruitfulness is that, that these little insignificant dots, these little frail, fragile, vulnerable things called seeds, they have to come, become even more fragile. And, and more vulnerable. And so they have to fall to the ground. Can you imagine being a seed? You already feel small, and now you're falling. So you, know, you feel even less powerful and less competent and less sufficient. And then you think, I'm going to hit the ground and die. And God says, yeah, that's what's going to happen. You're going you're to fall into the ground, and you're going to be entombed in dirt, and, and you're, you're going to die. That, that's the paradigm of all fruitfulness and growth. And, and what do we get from that? Well, we get, we get oxygen, plants come up out of the earth after they germinate and we get oxygen. Uh, we get to eat a lot of those plants. Our livestock gets to eat those plants and then we butcher the livestock and we have cheeseburgers. And then uh, this, this seed falls to the ground and becomes a tree. So then we can, we can use that tree to build our houses and make paper and write and read books. And you, you see, everything in life comes from this inescapable insistence of God to, to say it all comes from weakness. It all comes from the seed dying. That's how we get fruitfulness. If it dies, it bears much fruit. And ultimately, God says, that's how it is with you. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 2, he says, you no longer live. 
The, the way of your life, your follower of Jesus, you are crucified with Christ and you no longer live. Not in and of yourself. The life you now live, you live by faith in Jesus. He increases, you decrease. That's, that's how real power and life to the fullest, that's how it works. That's how God pulls it off. And Samson is a display of that. Look at verse 26. Samson is weak. Now, now, despite all the bad choices he's made in life, despite how he ended up here, the fact right now in this moment is that he is weak. In God's infinite wisdom, in God's ultimate providential plan, this moment in, in Samson's life is, is shaping up to be the most fruitful moment because Samson is weak. Right? His head's been shaved. He's lost his strength. He's blind. He's enslaved. He's exhausted. He's not being led around by dozens of armed guards, which is what you'd expect based on his track record. He's being led around by a young man because he's just not a threat anymore. He's so feeble. He's weak. He's leaning against the pillar. Now, now I don't know if he's shrewdly thinking this is exactly where I want to position myself to bring the house down, literally. Uh, he's entertaining, Baduch. <laughs> but he's gonna he's gonna bring the house down. Um, I think there's a dimension of it though that he's literally exhausted, and and it's hard for him to even stand on his own strength. So when he asks the young man, "Put me against the pillar, so I just have something to prop myself up against," I think that's part of this theme of weakness. And he's clearly he's being humiliated. He's being paraded in front of all these Philistine rulers at their party, uh, reveling and and enjoying. Uh, the, the, the victory of Dagon, their god, the false god Dagon. And he's being asked to just come out and entertain them. It's, it's a picture of them mocking Samson. He's being humiliated. It's all a picture of weakness. It's a very thorough, robust picture of weakness. And God would say, now we can really accomplish something. This, this is the key ingredient for my perfection recipe. Because again, this is God's this is God's big mission, to perfect us. He wants us to be perfect. And so the key ingredient for God's plan and, and passion to perfect us is weakness. That's how he's going to perfect his power. That's what it says in the Bible. You know, it's interesting, when you, when you look at how God operated in the fullness of time, when he took on flesh and he lived on this planet, uh, you, you wonder, how did he go about building his, his organization? You know, if God's coming to earth and he's, he's building his kingdom, right? He's, he's inaugurating this big movement, this big kingdom movement. Um, how does he go about that? For example, who does he recruit when he establishes his organization and, and builds it? Well, let's, let's be really clear. He could have recruited very highly educated, highly credentialed elite people like Nicodemus. John chapter 3, it, it's just teed up. Nicodemus could have been recruited by Jesus as an apostolic leader in the early church. For real, he could have been. I mean, a lot of the other Pharisees had it out for Jesus, but Nicodemus, he seems, he seems winsome and willing to work with Jesus. And Jesus totally squanders that opportunity. <laughs> he offends Nicodemus and kind of just sends him away to think about all of these really bizarre things that he's saying, like how you have to be born again and how the, the Holy Spirit is like the wind and it's mysterious. It's like he's trying to confuse Nicodemus and just send him away to think about these confounding truths that he's sharing. 
Instead of recruiting this Supreme Court member of the Jewish community, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, that's Nicodemus. Instead of recruiting guys like that, who does he get? He goes out of his way to get these guys. Who are they? The Bible calls them uneducated common men. Fishermen, former terrorists, guys who've sold out to the Roman government, tax collectors, we call them. And, and these people aren't just involved in Jesus' ministry and in his organization. They are promoted to positions of apostolic leadership. These, this is the core group, the leadership team of Jesus. And you can see in the book of Acts, it astonished people. As, as the organization somehow grew, I mean, somehow it was growing, like it gets up to 3,000 early on in the book of Acts. And then just like a chapter or two later, it's up to 5,000 people. It's growing. It's educated common men are called into these, these very uh, stuffy, important meetings with this elite panel of judges and governing authorities. And, and these people sitting in judgment over the apostles, they're blown away. <laughs> they look at these apostles and they say, these guys aren't even educated. They, they didn't even finish college, maybe not even high school. Like They are just common, uneducated people. What is going on here? Now, to be fair, let me clarify. Jesus did eventually recruit a highly educated, uh, very prestigiously credentialed guy. His name was, his name was Saul of Tarsus. But, but I got to tell you, once this highly educated, very credentialed man got on board the Jesus train and started following Jesus, um, he kind of just threw all of his credentials out the window. Uh, this is what he says in a letter to the church in Philippi. He says, you know, whatever credentials I had, and, and I had them, right? I, was, I was Pharisee of Pharisees, highly educated, highly credentialed, but whatever I had, I count it as rubbish, and uh, you can go research this later today or later this week, but he's using the Greek word here, skubala, which it's not just like, you know, you throw away a piece of paper, like you jot down a note, like I don't like it. it it's much more inflammatory than that. Um, I'll let you research it. It's like Paul's trying to provoke you and make you feel disgusted with his best stuff. What, what, I, what I most valued as a Pharisee, what society most values, my, my education, my credentials, my pedigree, I now counted as scubala. And the original audience would have, would have winced at that word. They would have read scubala and thought, oh, what? Of all the words <laughs> that you could use. I mean, are, you're trying to make us uncomfortable? Is that what you're trying to do? Like, you're trying to be gross? Paul's trying to make a point. He's not saying, you know, all the things in, in this world that, that we value, like, like education and, and, you know, certain titles and degrees, it's not like those are bad. But I think what Paul's saying is, you guys have gone crazy and you've become obsessed with those. Like, like it's not just that you value certain things. You, you inordinately value so many things that just, they don't align with Scripture. That's not what Jesus puts emphasis on in his kingdom and in his word. And you just let yourself get away with it. You, you just say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. And I also basically have an idol of these things in the world that everybody else on earth has an idol of as well. And Jesus uses his servant Paul to say, no, no, I'm going to force you to be uncomfortable. Scubala that stuff. Scubala it. It's rubbish. 
Paul says to the church in Corinth, when I came and I delivered the message of the kingdom of Jesus, when I preached to you, he goes out of his way to say, I didn't do it with eloquence. Or we could say nowadays, with an Irish accent. Or Scottish accent, because it's America. We just, you can say whatever you want. If you say it with an English accent. Oh, I love their accent. Paul would, Paul would talk like the most backwoods, redneck, just trailer trash guy, if that's what it took, to make this point. It's not about eloquence. It's not about any paradigm that the world would look at and say, that's wise. He says, the way it registers with the world is that it registers as foolishness. And he's being pretty in your face about it in places like Philippians and Corinth. And here again, Jesus embodies this indispensable principle. Here's what it says about Jesus in the book of Hebrews. This is unbelievable. Think about this. It says, the founder of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. That is so confounding. That is such a mystery, but that's what it says. He's God. What do you mean he was made perfect? I mean, he's already perfect. There's something that God wants you to really contemplate here. How did the one who was already perfect get made perfect? Through weakness, through suffering. Jesus is a high priest able to sympathize with us because he is weak. He, he understands weakness. He didn't stand aloof, you know, far away, distant from weakness. He understands weakness, tempted in every way. All the pressures and burdens and strains that you feel, he knows what that feels like. In fact, he feels it more intensely than you because he never gave into it. So where you tapped out and you gave in, he had to keep going. He knows the intensity of the burdens and pressures that you feel. Tempted in every way. He knows what weakness feels like. Get this. He deals gently with the wayward because he is beset with weakness. That's what the book of Hebrews says. Not, not he has a little bit of weakness. You know, it's there on the periphery of his life. No, in a very primary way, in a very pervasive way, he is beset with weakness. Hebrews 11 says, this is how strength works. Hebrews 11, there's this comment that God makes about all these people who were persecuted and, and made to feel their neediness and their weakness, and they suffered in all kinds of ways. And it says, and through these things, God made them strong. He strengthened them out of their weakness. It's not a stretch. It's going to sound really far-fetched to say what I'm about to say, but it's not a stretch to say, through this paradigm of weakness, God doesn't just make us strong. He makes us indomitable. That's true. Just sit with this for a sec. Jesus, yeah, he died. And then what? What happened after he died? He didn't just come back to life. He was indomitable. Right? Like, you're united to a Savior. Yes, he died. But then he rose from the dead, and he becomes absolutely indomitable, invincibly powerful. And Jesus said, that's my way. That's where I'm leading you. And yeah, you're going to have to live by faith if you get on board with that, because it's, it's going... It's going to be confounding. It's going to be a mystery. It's going to be practically really challenging so many, so many days and in so many instances. But that's what our king is offering us. That's what he's, it's what he's commanding of us. 
It's illustrated for us here in the life of Samson. The most indomitable act of Samson's career, what was it? Well, let's just review some of his exploits. Was it the foxtail thing that he did? I mean, that was a pretty, at least a very entertaining thing that he did. I mean, it was a pretty devastating thing. When you think of all the crops that were destroyed by these pairs of foxes running through their standing grain fields with torches tied between their tails, that, that has to be the most indomitable thing. And if it's not that, surely it has to be that, that moment when he, when he just picked up that jawbone of a donkey and he massacred a thousand Philistines. I mean, that seems crazy. That, that happened. The Bible said that's true. That happened. That's got to be the most, the most powerful thing Samson ever did. No, it's, it's this. It's this moment. Look at verse 30. It says, so the dead whom Samson killed as he was dying, when he was in a position of complete weakness and humiliation, his weakest moment than he did in the entirety of his career prior to this moment. God, God's telling you, this is the picture. The, the strongest guy in the book. Where is his strength the most potent? It's when he's at his weakest. And this is the big theme of God's perfection. This is his big plan. The power of the death of God's main character, Jesus the ultimate judge and savior and redeemer of God's people. Jesus comes into the world to what? Primarily to what? To, to do a lot of good teaching? To tell us how to be moral? To, to offer free, free food and free health care? I mean, he does all of those things. But, but what's the big thing? What's he here to do? He's here, he says, to die. He's here to die. He's here to give his life as a ransom for his enemies. And the Bible says the cross looks like foolishness. The cross looks like folly to the world. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And that's so primary. It is so, so primary. That's why we put it right up here. Every Sunday, you look at it. Because we want to remember this. And we want to steward this mystery. We want this to get in us and compel us in our everyday lives. It really is true. Jesus' death, the, the Bible illustrates in a very emphatic way how powerful that was. So in Matthew 27, you know when Jesus died, when he breathed his last and yielded up his spirit. Do you know what happened? In that precise moment when he took his last breath, Matthew 27 says, The earth shook, rocks split in half, tombs were opened, and people rose from the dead and started walking around town. And it says there's this Roman centurion, this guy who has presided over lots of crucifixions, lots of executions. And he says, this never happens when someone dies. I've seen a lot of people die. And this, earthquakes, resurrections, rocks splitting in half, that never happens. And so he, he testifies that this is surely the Son of God. This has to be God with us. As crazy, as marvelous as that, that sounds, that's the truth. The power of Jesus' death. Even creation is just bursting with evidence and, and illustration that this is powerful. The most, indom the most indomitable event in human history is what? It's not the Manhattan Project. It's not, it's not all the hard work of Robert Oppenheimer. Right? That, was, that, was, that was huge. The atomic bomb was huge. But way, way more powerful. 
sending ripples into eternity powerful. It's the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. That's what the Bible says. That's why all those people in Hebrews could, could be persecuted and be sawn in half and, and suffer the way it says they suffered. It's because they, they were walking with this confidence of the sacrifice of the Lamb and the promise of the resurrection of Jesus. It, it, it wasn't philosophy. It wasn't concept for them. It was, that was true. That was what was most primarily and most emphatically true. And God says, I want that to get in you as well. And so we're going to come and partake of this, this bread and this wine in a moment. And as you know, this is a picture of God perfecting his power and weakness. So you look at this and you think, okay, this is clearly weak. It's, it's most visibly, most illustratively conveying weakness. Blood being shed, body being broken, that's weak. It does not look like strength. And God's saying, if you are hungry for eternal life, life to the fullest, resurrection life, exclusively it is found here. This is the only place. This is where I really get you on the trailhead for perfecting my power. It's through your weakness. And Jesus takes the lead there. Jesus most critically not just displays, but, but accomplishes what has to be accomplished in this sacrifice in order for us to be united to him and enveloped in the life of the Godhead. So as you approach this table here in a minute, and as you partake of this meal, um, I need, in one sense, to warn you because you, you need to discern who you're dealing with here. Uh, you come to this table, and of course you think, okay, this is depicting the lamb who was slain. But the book of Revelation also says that simultaneously, though, though you're visually interacting with the lamb who was slain, it is also true that you are receiving the power of the Lion of Judah. And all throughout the book of Revelation, it describes the prominence and potency of the lamb like this. It says that the nations are terrified by this lamb. I mean, as you approach this table, it's, it's not just, oh, he was weak, he died for me. It's, he is the most powerful being ever. People in uh, Revelation, when they uh, hear about the lamb coming and, and, you know, inaugurating the last battle, right? The end, day, the end days, it says the nations will cry out, mountains fall on us, boulders crush us and hide us from the wrath of the lamb. So, you're... you're you're partaking of that being's body and blood. He, he was weak for you, but he's also infinitely powerful. And so, in other words, you know, approach this table like you would approach the atomic bomb. It's, it's huge. It's powerful. The lamb who, who sits in a position of power and who will pour out his wrath. That's part of what we're being exposed to here. And equally as important, this lamb is the one who wants to shepherd all who feel their need of him. This is the lamb who pursues his enemies, first and foremost, not to condemn them, but to have compassion on them. To meet us where we're at in our weakness and in our weariness and in our wretchedness. And to say to us, I want to save you and I want to wipe away every tear from your eye. 
and I want to take you, wife, to live with you, where, where two have become one, intimate, relational, eternal life together with Jesus, because you're his wife. That's what he's inviting you to do. When you come and partake of this meal, you have to grapple with that. You, you have to wrestle with, do I want, not, not just the intensity of the inevitable wrath of the lamb, but do I want the intensity of his intimacy? Do I want him to wipe away all my tears and take me to be his wife? The Bible says, if you don't wrestle with that, if you don't discern that that's what's being offered here, you are risking eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. And we don't want you to do that. So you, so you need to discern, you need to examine yourself and really ask yourself, what am I getting myself involved with if I come to this table? The fact is, God will perfect his power through weakness. Uh, permit me just one more minute to, to circle back to that Chinese imperial revolving vase worth $41.6 million. So on Tuesdays, a group of us sit down right here in front of this sanctuary, and we talk about this, this art book by Russ Ramsey. And uh, at the beginning of this, this book discussion that we had, we talked a lot about how God cultivates beauty out of brokenness. God, God doesn't conceal our blemishes and our brokenness. You don't read scripture and find stories of God concealing all the bad, broken, depraved stuff. He's, he's very conspicuous with it. He's telling us this is, this is part of the family history. This is a very prominent dimension of what it means to be involved in the life of the church, the family of faith. And ultimately, God says, the reason I'm showing you all of that brokenness and all of those blemishes is not to discourage you, but to show you that I'm going to beautify you through these stories of brokenness. So in the first discussion, Danny Reeves was there. She's an art major, uh, did college art major stuff. And she said, you know, it's like kintsuki. I hadn't heard of this before. Maybe you have. But it's this Chinese art where uh, a vessel, like, like an ancient bowl, pottery bowl, would be broken. And, and you don't just throw it away and get a new bowl. And you don't just take that bowl and like patch it up and then reglaze it and make it look like it used to look. You actually piece it back together where the fractures are. You glue that and then you illuminate where the fractures have occurred. And the reality is the fractures aren't just there, they're amplified. And it makes the bowl more beautiful. The brokenness actually makes it more beautiful. And God says, that's what I want to do. I want to perfect my power through all of these broken stories. That's why I'm so in your face with the dynamics of Samson's brokenness and all the other characters in Scripture. I'm not, I'm not celebrating all the hard stuff and brokenness, but I'm saying I will perfect my power through it. And that's what God wants to do when you come and you partake of this meal and when you come into the life of the family of faith. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for... Your ways, they're mysterious to us. They are certainly not the ways that, that we would have come up We marinate in the stories you've told us. The more we partake of this sacrament of the body and the blood of the most powerful being ever, we acquire a taste for it. We, we get on board slowly but surely. We, we are influenced by the power of your spirit the power of your word. And we pray that it would be deeply nourishing to us. It would, be, it would be dominant, highly influential in our lives, this story of how you perfect your power. And that we would live it out. We'd get much fruit in the name of Jesus. Amen.